how this Abbott acts and thinks um, just shows me that if I want to think and behave better, then I should associate with people who act and think better. And there's clear that's, benefit in that. Yes, that's amazing. Um, one of the uh, things that I learned in psychology way back in the 1970s impressed me in that regard. In the sense that if you take a three-year-old and put them in daycare with a bunch of other three-year-olds and have one or two people looking after five, 10, 20, or 30 kids, then most of the three-year-old's learning is done from three-year-olds. If, however, that three-year-old is in a family let us say a large extended family and they're the only little child in the family, then the aunts, the uncles, the neighbors, everyone, and that's in fact how Kitty was raised. She was raised around a whole lot of adults. And there's a difference that way, okay? And so we can take it from that perspective that most of us are raised around ordinary people. And if people are actually spending a lot of time with nobles, it really rubs off, just like the difference between being around. Um, an example would be if the little boy spends three year old and four year old spend his time with an uncle who happens to be a professor, then he's going to listen to professors talk at the professor's level. If, however, he is in that on sitting on the floor with the other three-year-olds, then he's going to be hearing what three-year-olds have to say. And that's where he learns. Okay. So, basically, the problem with uh, the normal human race is, is that we are all raised in a, let us call it, mental daycare where all of the adults are still daycare children, right? And, and we're not around very many adults. I've asked, I have actually seen that in process over a long period of time, and you have to get really old to do things over a long period of time. But what I have seen, in fact, here in Thailand, is young men ordaining because of whatever reason that their family wanted to, them to ordain. And then their spiritual practice is nothing more than just living at the Watt and staying with the monks. Whether or not they do any meditation, whether or not they do any chanting, whether or not they do any reading of books, none of that stuff is quite the, the, the thing. Why do I say that? It's because that's what we're all doing. <laughs> and it doesn't work so well. But being around nobles and listening to nobles talk and having noble thoughts around noble people, that is what I mean by that it seeps in. It really has that value. That just being around someone who is cheerful helps to cheer you up, especially even when you don't want to be cheered up, you can't help yourself. Uh, which one did you go to, Matt? Um, it's it's just a house. It only has three bikus, and it's in Burnaby, uh, British Columbia. Okay. 
Well, all of the watch started like that. The biggest, fanciest, most ornate watch in uh, the United States start like that. That in fact, when I first went to the Watt in Washington, D.C., Watt Tie, Washington, D.C., that it was in Silver Springs, Maryland, on Georgia Avenue, which is the main road that goes through Silver Springs and becomes 16th Street or something like that, um, into D.C. And um, it was it was a very big mansion. It was a large building. It had a basement and two floors and an attic that they had converted into a uh, place for children and whatnot. But parking was difficult. Now they've moved out of Silver Springs into, it may be like 15 acres or so, a huge place. So that happens on, on every occasion. They'll either start small and stay small, but all of the people who got successful at, at getting a house rented and getting some monks into it and getting the thing established, they've got plans. <laughs> how, how long has that British Columbia Watt been there? I don't know. I didn't ask that. Uh-huh. Well, you can tell yourself by how well established it is. In other words, how much of that house has been converted to something strange rather than what you would expect. It looks pretty normal. It looks pretty normal. So it probably is a new one then. And there's a lot of new ones. In fact, that when I was in uh, involved with that, um, let us say, ending in the late, you know, 2008-9 time frame, um, there were approximately maybe 300 watts. Now I've been informed that, and, and with that, the Thai watch, there was only like 100 of them, and now um, Ha Chan Ri has told me that there are 200 watts, 200 Thai watts in the United States. So they basically has doubled the number of watts in uh, Oh, 10 years or 15 years or so. Um, I tend, when I do the calculations, keep the Khmer and the Vietnamese and the Lao um, at the fixed numbers that I knew they were 15 years ago when there ever probability that they've doubled also. And in fact, there was a major, major mass expansion of building temples starting at about 1995. And the reason that that happened was because the refugees that came out of the war were stationed in Thailand and the World Health Organization and the United States government, uh, no, start, sorry, all the other governments, especially and including Thailand, put a lot of pressure on the United States government to do something about those refugees. <clears throat> and it wasn't until after the Reagan administration when the U.S. government felt enough pressure to start doing something. And so uh, that was like in the, uh, the early 80s, mid 80s, is when that those refugee camps started coming. And one of the ways that um, the U.S. government likes to do things is with sponsorship. And so um, being Christian and all and Reagan and Republican and all of that kind of stuff, uh, they went out and got a whole bunch of churches that would sponsor these groups, these family groups of these various countries coming in. And so immediately, starting in mid-1980s, 
all of those refugees came over and were, uh, let us say, shoehorned, hammered into the churches. And they stayed that way for more than five or more years. And then they started getting their sea legs. The people got jobs. They started to um, uh, make a, uh, a mark for themselves. And so now they want to start building Buddhist temples. That was the delay was getting them out of the refugee camps into the United States and then giving enough years so that they could get themselves established so that they had enough finances. And so since then, the number of Buddhist facilities that have been going in the West has just been kind of remarkable. And that's the very best way of doing it is to get two or three or four monks to live together in the West to support the Asian community. And that's how uh, every one of them has grown. Eventually, they get enough money to buy a nice piece of property. But then they'll start building on that. That's generally the way. And, and another thing that's really interesting about especially the Thais is they always want a lake. <laughs> They want to buy enough property so that they can have a lake and still have plenty of property around that lake for people to walk around the lake on Sundays. Even what Sue and Moke has that kind of thing. But in fact, one of the things they also has as a tradition, and I've heard that it has to do with a nursery line uh, that the Thai children are given when they're very, very young. And it has to do with a single coconut tree on a very, very tiny island out in the middle of the lake. So that's something to look for on, on the side is that what watch have lakes that have a small little island in the middle with a coconut tree? Well, because of the weather, the likelihood of it being a coconut tree is very low. They won't survive the winter in most of the places in the U.S. But something like a coconut tree. Um, <clears throat> so this is where we are with the what that you're going to is, is that it sounds like that it's newly established and that's, I, I find that quite nice that the Asians are uh, beginning to move around, get mobile. And every time they go to a new uh, town, they get enough, uh, Asian people to let's start a what in this town too. Pretty soon there will be, um, as many towns that have a uh, what as the number of towns that have a, a church. Those are spreading like that. So thanks for that information. That's that's good to know. But even in New Brunswick, they've got a what. What's the population of New Brunswick? Uh, this one's in British Columbia. British Columbia. Sorry. <laughs> British Columbia. Oh, so uh, you're talking about that's the whole, that's not a town, that's a, uh, a state, right, or, or province. Yeah, it's in Burnaby, which is part of Greater Vancouver. Oh, okay. So, Van, so is it, um, I do know that there's already watched in Vancouver. And so they may be spreading out. So this is kind of in the suburbs of Vancouver. Yeah. It's actually one of Ajahn Reet's new temples. Oh, it is. Oh, wow. Thank you, Eric. All right. <laughs> so 
So uh, that also is something that I should mention is, is that the best way for a Watt to get established is by getting people in a nearby Watt interested in the project. They have sponsorship. But in fact, that's how it happens. I know uh, that the, uh, the Watt in Hinsdale, uh, which is outside of Chicago, got um, assistance from other Watts in Chicago, but most of their assistance came from Thailand. And, and so um, the Thais are doing their own kind of missionary thing. <laughs> When's the last time you saw Achan Reed? Uh, a year or long, so? long time ago. Yeah, maybe a year. Mm -hmm. So did you have any idea about how old that Watt is that we're talking about from Achan Reed? Was it already an ongoing project or something new that you were starting? Um, I think I read something like maybe four four years or something. So it's probably young. been there eight years or so. Probably six, six to eight years. Okay, well, this is a Saturday morning here, Friday evening in your area. Um, it's not even sundown yet. And Eric, are you, your camera looks like it, it's a still shot. Is that because the camera is very stable, or is it because you've got an image up? A still shot? What do you mean? It's it's on a. Well, uh, I, I I see that landscape where you're parked. I assume it's where you're parked. <laughs> do you see me? No, I see a landscape. Oh. <laughs> Pavement and green and sky. Do you see me? <laughs> Where is that, I, Eric? I can't. I can't see my camera. Um, it's not showing me. Um, I'm in Montana. <laughs> it, I oh, guess wow. the, the image is flipped. <laughs> it, it looks really beautiful. It's a nice. Uh, it's nice <laughs> very <thing>. beautiful. <laughs> I don't know how to flip it. <laughs> oh, there you oh, go. You just did. <laughs> oh, okay. Now we see you and your car. <clears throat> <laughs> We've just been seeing Montana this whole time. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> well, who's got a topic? What can we talk about today? Anybody got anything that we're talking about, or we can continue talking about Santa? Uh, oh, do you have any thoughts on the assassination of Abe? Yeah, a lot of people don't like to die. <laughs> Get ready for it, because you don't know when it's going to happen. I mean, he's already been left office. Why kill him now? They should have shot him six years ago. <laughs> When I say that, I'm saying that jokingly. I'm not saying that they should have shot him at all. <laughs> in fact, it's very interesting that they used a homemade, what we call a zip gun. 
A zip gun? Doesn't matter. Pardon? It says zip gun? Yeah, a zip gun. All you have available to you is the bullet. What are you going to do? Well, you're going to go get a piece of copper pipe or a uh, water pipe of some kind that helps fit the bullet. And then you're going to get some kind of trigger or something, and you can do that with, with rubber bands and um, uh, a, a little small nail. And then you put it together with tape and uh, some sort of handle. Wow. Okay. They're very inaccurate, but they're good for very, very close range. I mean, if you've got that barrel pointed at somebody, if whatever comes out of that barrel at high speed is going to hit them. At 10 feet, not a chance. At 100 yards, no way. But close up, the zip gun will do that job. Don't use plastic for the barrel. It'll blow up in your face. Noted. <laughs> and in fact, this is the whole concept about a 3D printed gun. Is is that the barrel? Uh, unless you've got the really good kind of 3D printer equipment that can print metal, and even those that can print metal, it's not generally very good metal. That's the problem with we can, we cannot make really high quality stuff with 3D printing. And so the three the barrels on 3D printed guns tend to be really, really big, big things to handle the power of the bullet. But a piece of water pipe will do. And that's what they did. Because guns are not available. I would like to see at least a new a thousand or maybe two thousand zip guns winding up in the United States. Why is that? Because that's the only thing that the guy can get. The AK-47s and the AR-15s are not available. <laughs> Robert, do you have any questions about that assassination? Um, you know, not really. I, I just thought it was a very startling turn of events. And... Um, yeah, you know, it, it, it just kind of goes to show um, that you can have a country with the lowest amount of gun violence in the world and the strictest anti-gun policies in the world. And, um, you know, on any given day, someone can end up dead in the street from a gun wound. So you just never really know what's going to happen in life. People you know? wind up dead in the streets in uh, not just Tokyo, but all over Japan on a regular basis. There are plenty enough guns. That's an, actually an indication that the guy who shot him didn't have anything to do with Yakuza or any of the uh, Japanese mafias. If the mafia had done it, they'd have used a real gun because they got them. And the other thing that makes it really interesting about the zip gun is that if you can get close enough to somebody with a zip gun, then you can get close enough to somebody with nunchucks or a, a knife or a dagger or um, um, the samurai swords, any of that kind of stuff. And that would be the honorable way to do it. It's very dishonorable in the Japanese society to use a, a thing like a zip gun. He should have come up with a samurai fully dressed in all the samurai warrior stuff, come right up to the guy saying, I'm 
about to cut you in half and, <laughs> and watch you fall. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there were two other things I found interesting about it. One was I saw a picture of the guy, and he looked like a completely normal person. Um, you know, and in, in, in the U.S., there's kind of well, this archetype for the... Yeah, yeah, like he was wearing glasses, he had on a collared shirt, he was wearing, like, cargo pants, you know. Um, he just looked like a completely normal person that you might expect to see anywhere, which was quite interesting, you know. Well, he would have had to address that way, probably, to get that close to the uh, ex-prime minister. Sure. And another thing I found interesting about this is... Uh, you know, I've, I've studied Japan um, as a little bit of a hobby for a good amount of time. And I've noticed one thing I've, I've found is that Japanese society seems to be quite safe, peaceful and harmonious. But there will occasionally be these outbreaks of shocking violence, you know, like they had the sarin gas attacks, um, I think, in the 1990s. They had, I think, a few years ago in a mental institution, someone knifed 14 people to death. Wait a minute. It wasn't that um, sarin attack in South Korea done by the um, uh, the Moonies? No, that was in Japan. Um, and it, was, okay. it wasn't it was the Moonies, but it was something quite similar to that. It was a religious cult. Okay. Well, the Moonies are definitely uh, South Korean. I know that much. Yeah, yeah, they are. Yeah. But it was also a cult. I think it was called Am Shrinkyo. I actually read a book about it. Oh, yes, that. yes, yes, yes. That's exactly right. Sorry about that. Of, um, groups. Yeah, and, you know, and um, the novelist Haruki Murakami uh, wrote a book about that, actually, and that was what, that was the book that I read about it. But, you know, it's, it's interesting to me how you can have this very harmonious society in Japan most of the time. And there seems to be this, you know, um, something kind of dark underneath the surface that emerges every now and then. And I think you see it also in the suicide rate um, in Japan, which the country is famous suicide for. Suicide rate, very high. Su Japanese suicide rate's the highest in the world, or it was for a while. Sure. And I'm curious to hear your thoughts about that as to whether or not the really intense conformity um, that is present in the Japanese culture, um, you know, kind of necessitates um, a lot of bad feelings, you know, for many people, or maybe not necessitates, but causes a lot of bad feelings. Well, yes. In fact, uh, you can use the Japanese society as an example, but we've got American society that everybody already knows about, so I tend to use that as an example. But in Japan, the children are really, really pushed hard into school, much harder than they are in the United States. And you can see how each one of us has gotten so messed up by the kind of pushing that we did have when we were in school. The pressure to get good grades, the pressure to conform. Um, so you had pressure groups like teachers, you had pressure groups like uh, family, you had pressure groups like your church, and you had pressure groups, mostly the pressure comes from the other kids in school. But the kind of pressure that the kids have in school <clears throat> is from all the other stuff that we have. And in Japan, you can basically double that pressurization. 
And so Japanese children are highly pressurized to perform. And now, guess what? Since the uh, late 1980s, the, um, even though the Japanese uh, economy is the third largest in the world, it has grown, grown anemically since the 1980s. And jobs are hard to find. This is part of the reason. In, in fact, it's beginning to change that now, but we're talking about a whole generation where it was really hard to find jobs and all of that kind of stuff. And the Japanese stopped having children. In fact, they not only stopped having children, they stopped having sex. <laughs> uh, that the marriage rate had gone way, way down because all, of all of the pressures that was associated with getting married in Japan. And so now uh, they've got real problems because the society is getting elderly. There's not enough children to support them. And if there is any society in the world that is more racist than the Americans, it's the Japanese. The Japanese, they hate everybody. They hate the Koreans, and the Koreans hate the Japanese because of some old wars. They really hate the Chinese. And they, they, would, they would rather die than let an Islamic or a Muslim come in and stay in the country. It, there are almost no uh, Muslims in Japan at all. There's very little or no Christianity. You know, the Christianity was actually kicked out of Japan long, long ago. And so you can see that this is a, it's an insular society. And about the only hope they have left is Honda. Why? Because Honda is big on robots. And Honda is building the robots then to do what the Japanese society needs done for a workforce because they don't even have a workforce and are not about to import a workforce. So they've got basically the same kind of problems that other people, uh, other countries have. They just have it in spades in Japan. With a struggling economy, very low growth uh, rate, very few jobs to have, very few people to fill those jobs while you've got tons and tons of tons of people over 65. I guess you knew, did you guys notice about Japan? Is this news for you? News to me. News to you. How about you, Matt? Did you know that, that Japan has these kind of jobs? I'm sure that Robert does. Sure, yeah. So, Robert, with those kind of situations that Japan has, um, including the old violence, that Japan was really, really violent in the old days. I mean, this is a, the whole thing was is that they were at war on that island with warlords until the shogunate was formed in the 1700s. And Buddhism was coming in at, uh, during that time uh, and so Buddhism got very, very wrapped up with the uh, uh, military. There's a lot of skills that have to do with Buddhism that are also the same as military skills. But you can see the whole way the, of Zen and the art of archery, uh, the whole way of the uh, archery in Japan is highly, highly stylized based upon the movements of the body. But that's the interesting thing about uh, Japanese um, archery is they're not interested in who can hit the target and who gets the best shot. 
they're interested in the form that the uh, uh, the warrior is is using, and so they have to practice very carefully. There is also something very interesting: the way that in the West or in the English longbow is they would hold the bow out and then pull the string back with the strong right arm, giving them huge uh, uh, chest cavities. But in Japan, they notch the arrow, keep the right hand very close to the eye, and then take the, uh, the longbow and open it as they're drawing it down. And then as soon as they get it, they let it go. And the reason for that is actually I'm using it with this way. This is the Western way. But in Japan, they do hold it with the thumb and the index finger because you actually get more precision. But you can't hold an arrow on a very strong bow that long. So you have to have the aim done before you get the barrel lined up. So as soon as the arrow lines up, you let it go. So you do not see a Japanese archer holding and stirring and like this and seeing what I'm going to shoot. That's a movie shot. Okay, they don't do it like that. They take the bow and they go like and let it go immediately, or they can't hang on to it. Um, but it's done completely stylized. Hello, Alex. We're talking about. Japan and uh, Buddhism and, and Zen right now. And so everything about the Zen archery has to do with exactly how you're going to make the movement and it has to be practiced over and over and over again. You have to know exactly where the arrows are on the quiver so that you can take that arrow and do that with it. Then you have another arrow and do that with it. Then another arrow and do that with it. It's a uh, very stylized way of doing it. But you can also see that same thing with the swordsmanship or even the way that they sit. You've heard and probably seen a Zen bench. Do you know what I mean by a little bench? It's about it's a piece of wood about this long and it's got two little legs and sometimes they fold. You know why there is that Zen bench? It's because Westerners can't sit on their heels, so they put a little bench there. But the real Japanese way is that you sit uh, right on your uh, on the heels. Now, if you've got fat calves, you're going to have knee troubles that way. That's why we have the, uh, the, the little bench. But the whole point of sitting on the heels is so that you can raise up, immediately put your left foot out. And as you're doing that, you begin to stand up. But in the meantime, the hilt of the sword, the way that they're put, in order to get the sword out, you have to have a really strong motion of the thumb on the left hand so that you can push that sword out. So by the time that the swordsman is grabbing it, he doesn't have to go down where the handle is normally. It's already in the air about right here for him to pick it up. So that as he's whipping that sword around, he's already standing up and he's got the sword down like that and he can hit it. And if you can't get your sword out to block that, you're going to get your head split open. And that happens only about a second. You've got to be fast to survive that. But you also have to practice over and over and over again that standing up. That's why they sit on their heels, not because it's a comfortable position. It's so you can stand up for warfare instantly. Try that with a cross-legged position. How, how fast can you stand up if you're sitting cross-legged? takes what five seconds you've been sliced in half twice but by the time you can stand up <laughs> but in the zen posture 
you've got a chance of standing up with this this uh, quick movement, but you have to practice it over and over and over again, which is where the only the whole teachings of the Buddha is all about. Is that you have to practice it over and over and over, and that the young student with the sword says, "I can't do that," then that's that loser's attitude. And the teacher's going to say, yes, you can do it again, do it again, do it again, over and over and over again until we begin to get confidence. Well, with swordsmanship or music or boxing or any of that kind of stuff, the teacher to tell the student to do it again and do it again and do it again is easy enough because the teacher can watch him do it. But how can we do that with meditation? How can we tell the student to brighten his mind? How we can and do it over and over and over and over again when the students don't. They already have the idea I can't do it. They already start off with the mentality of. <coughs> uh, the loser. That how I couldn't do it. All right? And so this is part of the reason then Matt about the Sangha is that if this kid that is saying he can't do it is living around the, uh, the whole uh, his whole family of elder monks are all demonstrating that they can do it. Here you sit with us and you can do it too. This is the value of the Sangha is getting around other people who are good at it. So a little child playing with a wooden stick out in the yard is not going to learn very much swordsmanship. But if his dad's a trainer and going to uh, be out there hitting swords with him, he's going to learn how to do it. So this is the, the, the issue about Sangha that we need so much is that we need to be around other people who can do it to show that it can be done here. Join in and you practice too, over and over and over and over and over again. This is the real secret of the teaching of the Buddha that nobody really knows so much about. There's actually several secrets and, and this one is that issue of repetition. Well, that's an open secret in music. Everybody who ever learned how to play a musical instrument, anybody here is a musician will tell you, yes, I had to practice. <laughs> I had to play that piece of music over and over and over and over and over again before I ever got it right. And when I did get it right one time, didn't mean that I'm going to get it right the next time I play it. I got to keep practicing until I can practice it, doing it right over and over and over again correctly. And that's when I'm learning the Everything has to be repeated over and over and over again. And so um, this is one of the things that the Sangha can bring that when people are practicing on their own at home, they don't get that. And what good would it be to write the word over and over and over again, 20 places on a page, and then have a whole book that says nothing but over and over and over again? Do you think the student is going to get anything out of a book like that? No. But you can live with people who know how to keep going, keep doing it over again and over again and over again. Robert, you got your hand up. Howdy. Yeah. So I was wondering, you know, if you look at, say, three of the most popular uh, branches of Buddhism, 
um, Zen, uh, Tibetan, and there Theravada. There is no such thing, and that's not a way of looking at them. There's no such. Please don't go with popularity. Buddhism okay, is not about popularity. <laughs> I, I, okay, three of the most um, commonly followed branches of Buddhism. Um, you know, say uh, Zen, Where? Uh, Tibetan. Are you and, saying are there more Thai people than there are uh, Tibetans? No, 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 no. Okay, just that, this is the run-up to the question, right? And, and the purpose of the question is, if you look at Zen and Tibetan, there is a huge focus on aesthetic practice, right? You know, in Zen you have uh, calligraphy um, and poetry, you know, are highly emphasized as at, at Zen institutions as important parts of the practice. While at Tibetan you have these... In Tibetan, you have these mandalas, right? In these really ornate, elaborate paintings, etc. Uh, Theravada doesn't seem to emphasize that, you know. And Zen also emphasizes the kinesthetic, right? Like, say, um, physical practices like uh, archery or swordsmanship, etc., which probably has to do with its martial military background. And Theravada seems to focus mainly on just the 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 transmission of the verbal and written dhamma um, from the original Pali te teachings, as opposed to these kinesthetic um, and aesthetic concerns. So I, I was curious as to whether or not you had any thoughts on that, like why Theravada oh. doesn't seem to have an aesthetic tradition or a kinesthetic tradition. Okay. Um, let's look at the word aesthetic later. Um, let's uh, start to focus immediately on the culture that Buddhism goes into, because once Buddhism comes to a culture, what you're going to have left is that culture. With a little bit of sprinkling of Buddhism on the top of it. So when you've got Tibetan Buddhism, you don't have Buddhism. You've got Tibet with Buddhism sprinkled on top. In Thailand, when you what you have is Thai culture with a little bit of Buddhism sprinkled on top. Now, the thing of it is, is that this sprinkling of the Buddhism happens over and over and over and over and over again through the centuries. And so there's quite a layer of it that, in fact, that's one of the things that I'm continuously happily surprised at is to chase Thai culture and how you could see that Buddhism had an effect upon that. An example is, is that Thai, Thailand is a bit matriarchal. Well, that matriarch, actually most Buddhist uh, societies are matriarchal, partly because it has the quality of leaving the home for the women to take care of while the guys are out doing their thing which means sitting under a tree <laughs> or shooting a bow. But it's, um, uh, that's the way to do it. But the important point in this is, is that this Japanese culture is highly materialistic. They've been at war in Japan for centuries. And so you come and sprinkling Buddhism on uh, that warrior-like mentality and that, uh, that kind of culture. What that means is, is that now your Zen archery is going to be highly stylized because of the repetitive use for it, rather than just giving a kid a bow and say, have at it. 
going to take that child and train him over and over and over again. You actually know that not only is that true in the actual practice, but look at the way that they make their weapons. The way that they beat the steel to get that kind of edge on it, that's something that you have to pound and pound and pound and fold and make sure that you've got one kind of metal on this side and the other kind of metal on the other side, that you want it really, really sharp. So you have different kinds of steel. And that's the part of the development that has taken over the centuries of Japan is the way that they make the swords and also the way that they make the bows. Here's actually some uh, YouTube shows about this guy that is going to be making the Japanese bow. And where does he do that? He starts right there in the woods cultivating the bamboo forest. It's a really, really vertical exercise that he's got to go right from the very beginning to choose the right wood and, and all of that to make those bows. And so this is a, um, uh, the way of understanding that every culture, in other words, when Mexico gets completely Buddhism, everybody in Mexico becomes a Buddhist. That's going to happen someday. But it's not going to stop it from being Mexican. You're still going to have everything that's in Mexico is going to remain in Mexico. It's just going to get polished a bit. <laughs> yes, Matt. Uh, as you may remember, I was in Bangkok for a couple of months and I was really impressed by Thai culture. So my assumption is you think that uh, Thai, Thai Buddhism is the best. So do you think that's partly because Thai culture is the better basis to start from compared to Japanese or other cultures? I not only would think that, but <clears throat> I do not see the progression going in the other direction. But I can give people like uh, uh, Gil Farsdale would be one. Another one would be Emmanuel Sherman. These guys went to Japan first and then came to Thailand and stayed. And so uh, that, that's why when Westerners go looking for Buddhism in an authentic way, one of the places that they'll start with is Japan. And then they'll move to Thailand. All right. So let us also talk about it in the sense of austerities. Now, People practiced austerities in the time of the Buddha, but in fact, the Buddha was really big into austerities. After he practiced the jhanas and found out that jhanas are not the answer to the question, maybe I'll go and be with the Jains. So, and so he was with Mahavira for a while, and he became really good at it. He was so good at it, he nearly killed himself with these austerities. He got so thin that we have these shrunken uh, statues of, the, of the, the starving Buddha. I think that those are exaggerated. But the point is, is that he did try the austerity. So later, when he was developing the Sangha, there would be guys who would come into the Sangha still wanting to practice their austerities. And so he gave a list of those austerities that he would allow and the austerities that he would not allow. 
And one of those austerities that he not only did allow, but encouraged was barefoot. Why? Because when you've got quad hoppers on, you hop quads uh, mindlessly. If you're after hopping those quads barefoot, you're watching where you're going. <laughs> You'll be mindful of every step. And so that would be an austerity then that would be um, useful in practice. Also, um, they made furniture in the time of the Buddha. There was actually uh, directions in some of the old literature about how many sticks it takes to make a chair. And they bind it up and make a little chair, okay? Not only that, but in the Anapanasati Sutra, there is a well-known phrase that is in many, many other suttas. And that's when the Buddha says, go to the forest, go to the foot of a tree, go to an empty hut or a pile of straw and sit down on one of these pieces of furniture. It's a couch, it's a chair, it's made of wood, it's not comfortable, but it's better than sitting hard on the ground. Okay, and so what we have had is culture come in. The culture that's coming in is this idea, especially in Western Buddhism, that you've got to sit cross-legged on the floor or on a hard surface for long periods of time. Well, no, that's not exactly what uh, the whole point was, is, is that you need to be comfortable. And austerities are not comfortable. Walking barefoot, if you're walking mindfully, is mostly comfortable, with occasionally discomfort. There's times when you can't help but having to cross a gravel road. You don't want to walk on the gravel, but if you're going to cross the road, you're going to have to be doing a little gravel so you can mindfully watch how you're feeling when you're crossing a gravel road barefoot. But your feet will toughen up. The question is, can you get your mind tough enough so that you can walk on the gravel road for a short time? But most of the time, we're going to find better places to put our feet down. All right. So the whole concept then is comfort. This is part of the definition of the word sukha, is to being safe, secure, comfortable, and satisfied. And yet Westerners are taught to sit in a cross-legged position that they didn't sit in when they were little kids. Every one of us that are raised in the Western culture were grabbed up off the floor by the time we were three years old or even younger and put into a high chair and given furniture to sit on. Okay. And that um, they're on MSNBC, they have a program, I forgot who was doing it, but it has to do with buying chairs and desks for a country in Africa, Mali. And, the, and all of these Westerners are very, very happy to donate all of this furniture, saying that these kids can find and learn so they don't have to sit on the floor. No, these kids been sitting on the floor and they're going to continue to sit on the floor. The only reason they're sitting on desks is because the Westerners have cameras out to show that they're sitting on the desk. If those Westerners really want to help those kids, they're not going to buy desks and chairs. They're going to buy them laptops. They're going to buy them cell phones. They're going to buy them some stuff that they can learn from. They don't need furniture to learn. Okay. And you don't need to learn meditation by removing furniture. 
doesn't work like that. And in fact, in the time of the Buddha, they had furniture then too. But the cross-legged posture has just become kind of famous for some reason. The monks can sit that way in Thailand because that's the easy way to sit. In other words, if you don't have a chair to sit on, how are you going to sit? And you wind up sitting cross-legged, so they get used to that. But in the West, we've never been without furniture, so we don't sit on the floor very much. In fact, we tell the kids to get off the floor, it's dirty. We don't want to be on the floor because it's uh, cold. Well, here in Thailand and in other places in the tropics, you want to sit on the floor because it's the coolest place to sit. And not only that, but the floors are generally not dirty because the Thai people are very careful to keep the floors clean. And the best way to keep the floors clean is don't walk into the room with your clodhoppers on. Because the clodhoppers still have clods on them. Take the shoes off. That will keep your floors clean so that then you can sit on the floor happily. So. This is a point about the austerities. We have to understand where did these austerities come from and why do we have them? And if the austerity is an actual training exercise that you could use for your value, then yes, the Buddha would allow that. But if you're doing a training uh, or doing an austerity simply because you think the austerity itself has good properties to it, then the better thing to do is to drop it. That, that the Buddha would not, in fact, recommend that you sit in cross-legged postures when they're uncomfortable. No, you want to sit comfortably. Yeah, Robert. Well, and this leads us back to the original point that started this whole conversation, uh, or this whole topic, uh, which is that austerity related to wholesomely it can lead to, um, you know, a powerful and nurturing sense of resilience in the personality, or it can lead uh -huh. to people wanting to jump off a bridge or shoot the prime minister, you know, if it's related <laughs> to unwholesomely. <laughs> right, exactly so. Um, and and so in, in that way, we can recognize that, yes, some austerities are going to make us strong. Just like going to a gym, if you practice correctly, then it's not ever really an austerity. It's just development. So you start off with one kilogram or two pound dumbbell. And what do you do with it? What am I doing with my hand? Reps. Reps. Repetition, repetition, repetition. There is no austerity in the dumbbell. The austerity comes in the repetitions. When we do it over and over again, the arm gets tired. But that tiredness of the arm is just enough then for when you stop doing the repetitions, the arm will rebuild itself a little stronger next time. All right. The austerity in that would be going to the gym and going immediately to the 20 kilogram dumbbells. And you can barely pick that thing up. And after you get it up, you'll set it back down. Whew, that was so hard. 
and you probably didn't get much muscle development after working with weights that you can't manage. But if you can manage and do reps over and over and over again with a very light weight, then you can begin to build up the weights. And it never really is an austerity. It's a development. Doing it with repetitions over and over and over again. And so actually that was happening the way that the Buddha was practicing the, the austerity of um, food. Was that he started off eating just a little bit, cutting it out just a little, a little, until he got down to seven rice grains a day. And then the next week or two, he would practice with six rice grains a day. And then the next week or two, he would practice five rice grains a day. You can see the repetitive part of it. Okay, it's the over and over and over again, but what he saw was is that that was making him weak, not strong. So, in practice of Anapanasati, we want to practice this over and over and over again with small weights, right? saying we can do this and we keep doing it and we keep doing it. And what uh, one of the things that we're building up is the confidence that we could do this. Now, one of the things that I can point in the opposite direction is within the Mahasi method, they have this thing that has to do with um, uh, the austerity of the mind, which takes them into the dark night of the soul. Right? You've heard about this. It's in the 16 stages of insight. It's steps 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, and 11, which is fear, misery, disgust, despair, anguish, and a strong desire, heavy duty, strong desire to get out of it, followed then by a redoubling of the effort. In other words, finally, we're going to start putting in right effort, followed by step 12 then is going to be the actual correct practice of the Eightfold Noble Path. Okay, so the point that I'm making here is, is that if you actually have gone that deep through a dark night of the soul, and come through it. You come through it, if you do come through it, stronger than you did before you went into it. In the sense of, wow, look how hard I worked and I survived. That, and in fact, this is one of the ways that they look at it. You could say that, in fact, if you put somebody under enough pressure, not so that he'll break, but so that he becomes resilient and keep putting that pressure and keep putting that pressure on him, then real strength will come. Um, one of the examples out of Zen that I use is that this guy, uh, he was a farmer. His, uh, in his young life, his daddy wanted him to go and become one of the warriors. And so he went to the uh, martial uh, place where they were training and um, the, the abbot took one look at this guy and saw how stupid he was. And so he gave him an exercise. He says, you fill this vat full of water. Go get one bucket after another until you fill this vat. And then what you're going to do is you're going to slap the water with your hands. Slap, 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 slap. And as you slap the water, you're going to slap it hard enough that a lot of the water is going to go out. And when the water gets low, you go back with your buckets and you fill it up again. And when you get that bucket filled, you're going to slap, 
slap and slap and slap, and that's all you're going to do. Well, about six months later, he goes home for a visit, and his dad uh, asks him, well, what have you been doing at this uh, training place? And, and the kid says, well, the, uh, the teacher has given me this exercise to slap the water, and I slap and I slap. And the dad looked up at him sitting there at the table and says, what a stupid thing you're doing. That's a bad thing. And that really ticked his son off. The son stood up. And he slapped the table like that in, in frustration and anger with his dad. And he broke the table into smithereens with one slap. And the dad looked at the broken table and said, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> and so that's the quality of the repetition. Be careful that you know the distinction between austerities, which means you're working too hard doing something that you can't do and are not successful at it versus doing something that you are successful at over and over and over and over and over again and getting the delight for doing that becoming successful and feeling really successful at it and that's especially valuable when that thing that we're practicing over and over again is not slapping water it's slapping dukkha. <laughs> Look at that. Oh, Alex, you've got your hand up. I see you dark. You're in the dark. Hey, yeah, sorry. I'm driving. Um, I know I'm cutting in the middle of the conversation here, but I only had about 10 minutes, and I, I wanted to mention something to you, Domerado, see if you had any insight. <laughs> All right. So I had a really, had a kind of a argumentative conversation with my girlfriend, and she said that she wanted to be alone for the night. Um, and I guess the thing specifically that I find I kind of um, come to over and over and over again is this repetitive tendency to make myself super available and want to be with her, even though she has expressed that she wants to be alone. And then when she says she wants to hang out again, I'm just up for it. I'm like ready to go. I'm available. And I feel like because of this, I resent her for it. And it's hard. It's really hard. It's hard to, like be so freaking available for someone I feel like I am displacing like my own value um, I know that this is all relative level shit but I was just curious if if you had any insight for me on how I can kind of maybe have some clarity with all this because I, I feel well. it very much causes me to um treat myself badly and her badly as well okay well the first thing is is that um togetherness is something to be practiced but one of the things about that practice is, is that we also need to practice being alone to practice being together right. and practice being alone and she's already given you the indication that she's got kind of uh, uh, at least some sort of schedule in her mind about when she wants to practice being alone. 
and when she wants to practice being together. So the yeah. question is, is can you be flexible enough to fit that schedule so that you can also practice being alone when she wants to be alone? That's great. And when she wants to be together, then okay, that's the time to be together. Can you be flexible or do you have to have it my way? No, I want it my way. No, for sure. I, I think I just, I left out that her and I were supposed to hang out tonight. We, I came to see her. We got in an argument. She went in her car and then she said, I think I'm just going to go home. And then I said, right. well, it would be really well, nice I don't blame her for that. I don't want to argue with you either. I don't I know. blame her for that. At all, I don't want to argue it, with you. But it wasn't all me, though, either. Oh no, that's right. Why don't you get your blame gun out and shoot us all with it? <laughs> huh? <laughs> What'd you say? I said, why don't you get your blame gun out and shoot us all with it? I mean, there's no end to the blame once you start blaming someone else. No, I know. I, I understand. It's just like, as okay, I was the talking, question is, she just kept cutting me off. And I mean, it got very difficult to be able to have a conversation with her. I know. And when that's happening, the advice is to shut your mouth. That's the right thing to do. And if you'd shut your mouth sooner, she probably wouldn't have wanted to go. It's the fact that you keep arguing because you want to win. This is why people have arguments. Now, here's something very interesting about an argument. Someone who really, really knows what they're talking about don't get into arguments much. Let's give an example that two guys are fighting. One's a fat earther, somebody's a round earther, but he doesn't have any experience, and so they're fighting with each other over it. So where now you have an airline pilot that walks by and hears that conversation, He's not interested in joining the argument. He doesn't want to convince a fat earth that this is right. He already knows for sure, and he doesn't need to get into an argument about it. So this is one of the points about arguments is people who really do have the truth. They do really know what they're talking about. They tend not to argue. It's only when we're unsure that we will actually cling to something. That in fact, truth is, is Teflon, but uh, uh, weird facts uh, only have a substance to them when someone is clinging to it. Uh-huh. So yeah. people will cling to lies very strongly. Right. And when in fact, we don't know. An example of that is that you can walk up to any Christian in town, no matter who it is. Let's say the most zealous and ask him the kind of questions, what real, strong, solid evidence do you have of any particular thing that he's, he believes in? Do you have really strong evidence? And they don't have any real evidence. They have what they call a belief. And we, and we choose to um, attach to the things that we believe. Well, one of the things that you believe, Alex, is, is that you can win an argument. And you just found out that you couldn't. She walked out on it. <laughs> yeah. Uh -huh. 
Yeah, you can't win an argument. That's one of the mistakes that people make. When you know absolutely sure because you've been in enough of these arguments, that you know for sure you will never win an argument. No one wins an argument. The only winning of an argument is when people stop arguing and start laughing at how stupid it is to argue. So, so I I hear what you're saying the thing about the too, arguing. Ken, is how soon can you catch that you've gotten yourself into an argumentative mode when you want to peace or when you want something, or yeah. when you, especially if you're getting angry. If you want something enough and you're not getting it, so you begin to get angry. Wakey, wakey, wake up to that. A really easy way of doing it is noticing tone of your own voice. If you start yelling, or if you start raising the, uh, the pitch of your own voice, so you can hear that, you can say, oh, time to shut up. Time to close that noise hole. Yeah. Why? Oh, that's good. Okay. Alright, take a deep breath and be quiet for a while until you can get yourself back into a really, really happy state. And the easy way to do that is when you're there with her, after you become silent, she's going to yell a little bit more, and then she'll become silent too. And then you can smile at her, and she'll smile back, and argument's finished. The only way to finish an argument is by shutting them up. That's the only way to stop an argument. Shut up! And we have to remember right, I, that. I got it. I understand the teaching. Thank you. I appreciate it. <laughs> Um, there's, there's another, the thing though, that I was saying in the beginning, Domerado is the one that's kind of more pressing. It's this, this sense that, you know, when she said she wanted to be alone, obviously, I mean, yeah, I had unwholesome thoughts and I was hurt. And I said, well, it'd be really nice to see you because I know you're going to be working this weekend, but I understand if that's what you want. And then she said, I need alone time first maybe later and all right perhaps the right thing to have said right then was you know something that's a really really good idea but you no, didn't it, say and it, it was and, and it was but i how i felt but you didn't tell her that and you didn't feel that way no i didn't but how i felt was that if she wanted to hang out later i would just be up for it I was just I was just waiting around my phone. I was hanging around my phone, waiting for her to text me. And now I'm on my way. I'm gonna be there in five minutes, and it's great. But I feel diminished in some way. Like I diminish myself when I wait around. Basically, the more you diminish yourself, the better off you will be. And when you're no longer there, then you can be happy. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, yes, you again? have diminished yourself. Do it some more. <laughs> what did they say? Shut the up. That's the way. But guess what? That also gains power. It diminishes the idea of the self or the selfishness because you want your way. That's why you're yelling, because you want your way. If you shut up, that will give her a chance for you to listen. 
Wait, so you're saying it's good for me to wait around for her text message to tell me that she wants to hang out? It's good no. for me to diminish myself in that way? Yes. Why? But no, don't hang around the phone waiting for it to ring. In fact, go take a walk intentionally knowing that you're going to miss her next call. Yes, and that's what I was doing. I was like napping or I was just laying down and meditating, feeling the feelings, like observing everything. And I was still waiting. I was still checking my phone just to see. Right, that's what I'm saying is is that you're still waiting for her, still checking your phone instead of forgetting about it. Go for a walk and leave the cell phone at home. Pardon? But I can't do it. I can't do it. Yes, you can. I can't do it. Sure, you can. Yes, you can. I if you were around it. nobles who set their phone down and didn't didn't pay any attention to them, invited you to go for a walk and told you to set your phone down, you probably would. You could do that. I know, but this isn't about the phone. This is about this is this about is about the way you behave, and it's also yes. about the way you feel. And I'm yes. giving you yes. an opportunity to wake up to it because you don't have any nobles around who are going to laugh at you in a way that help wake you up. There's no one there that can just, ha, ha, I see what you just did. <laughs> You're going to have to do that for yourself, Alex. You're going to have to remember to wakey, wakey, that you can remember that when you're with this lady that you need to um, behave in a way that is pleasing to yourself and to her and stop wanting what you want and start enjoying what you get. This is old stuff for you and I, isn't it? This is not new. I know. I just, I, I'm, I feel so fucking defeated about it. Ah, well, great. That means that you don't have to go into that battle anymore. You keep losing that one. So let's not have that battle anymore. Because every time you get into that battle, you feel defeated. Why don't you go have some battles that you know you're going to win? In fact, why don't you go do some, instead of battles, have some games to play. Treat this situation between you and her as a toy for you to play with and to learn rather than demanding that you get your way. This is what the Buddha recommends with relationships, is that if you're going to devote your time and efforts and energies to the Dhamma, then leave everything else to the the wife. Let her choose the house, the kids, the car, the clothing. And in your case, the time that you're together and the time that you're away, whatever she wants, you let her have it. And you deal yes, with that but on that's the inside. Not, yes, but that's not good for me because that leads me to diminish my own self. I end up waiting around for her because I'm leaving everything up to her. Right, terms. that's the whole point. For me. Which means that you don't, that you didn't believe it when you said that it's okay for her to have a loan. You still don't want it. You're demanding to have something that you don't have. You're not okay with it. You're waiting for her to call you when, in fact, 
what you could do instead is forget all about her and go enjoy your barefoot walk. Watch where you're stepping. How? How? How do I forget her? How do I forget her when I'm not with her? How do I do it? Well, when the thought of her comes up, you can say, hey, there she is again. Hello, goodbye. And throw her out of the mind and come back to what you're doing in the present moment. And when another thought of her comes up, you can throw that thought right back out also. Don't think about it. Just, you've heard the, the Buddha talk about it. Don't think about elephants. Don't think about the floppy ears on the elephant. Don't think about those great big pods that he calls feet. Don't think about those giant toenails. Don't think about that big bushy tail. Don't think about that big heavy uh, skin that the elephant has. I know that that's paradoxical because when I'm talking about I don't think about elephants, everybody here is thinking about elephants, right? <laughs> Even though the injunction is don't think about elephants. So I know that that's the, the point, but that's it. We can change your mind. You can change your mind. I can change my mind. Matt can change his mind. And when thoughts that are there that are painful, Change those thoughts. Don't have painful thoughts. I want her. I want her. I want the phone to ring. Say, hey, man, I'm stronger than making myself miserable because I want something that I don't have right now. Tend to let her have her way. Your job is to shut your mouth and to smile. Uh, Dom Morato, can I add something here? Having been in a sure, similar you're, situation. You're an expert at this one, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> yes, Robert. Yeah, yeah, I'm an I'm an expert in this one, for sure. Um, so so one time I was in a similar situation, and Dom Morato, uh, are you there, Alex? Yeah, I'm here. I gotta go. Okay, to great. Bed, yeah. Okay. And he recommended I go for a walk, like a long walk. Like he said, just get out there for a long time. And I went for two hours. And I did bring my phone, and I put on stuff I really liked. You know, like really nice music, podcasts, you know, nice Domorado talk. You know, just stuff you really like. Because the fact is, right now, you're in a hot state, and she's in a hot state. And you need to cool down. And if you're in a good state, whenever you get that text message, even if it's tomorrow, you're going to respond way more wisely than you would if you were still in a hot state. So just do things you really like. And going on that walk is also good for your physiology. And and I responded to Don Morato because I was too lazy to go outside. Well, I'll go for a walk in my own mind. And he said, no, you actually need to change your physical state. And that's what I did. And after about like a certain amount of time, maybe it was 30 minutes or so, I started to feel really good on that walk. You know, you're breathing. There's a little bit of a breeze. You know, it just feels great. You know, your body's moving, et cetera. So if you get yourself feeling good, you know, your thoughts will change. And you'll be better prepared for whatever may come next. So, um, so getting in a good state is the best thing you can do for both of you. And going Thanks, for a walk Robert. is a great way yeah. to do that. Yeah, for sure. 
Yeah, thanks, Robert. I I know that I know everything you're saying, and I've heard it before, and I've practiced it myself. I just, I don't know. You don't like it. I just, I just didn't you're do well. You're in the state I, of not liking. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you don't right. like it. Well, you gonna, just needed I'm the therapy take... session. <laughs> yeah. I'm yeah. going to take some breaths. I'm here now, so I got to get myself into a good uh -huh. state. Um, Taking the walk so... has another advantage. And this is, this is one of the things that we can mention. And that is, is that there are some cardiologists who say that every human being has three distinct heart muscles. Now, when we're talking about the uh, uh, the left and the right ventricles of the of the, the heart that's in the chest, that's just one of these hearts. The other two are the big calf muscles in the legs. That every time you take a step and then release that muscle, that muscle pumps up and then relaxes, pumps up and relaxes. Well, blood only goes in one direction. There's tiny little valves in the legs. So every time that you take a step, that pumps blood. And so by walking, you're actually getting good circulation that we don't get when we're sitting. This is part of the reason why the Buddha would recommend walking meditations. And in the time of the Buddhas, uh, the monks didn't ride horses at all. Anywhere that the monk wanted to go, he walked. And so he was healthy because he walked a lot. Here in our world, this is so crazy, I don't understand it. You, have you ever seen treadmills where people will buy, you know, they cost six, eight hundred dollars, some of them two, three, four thousand dollars, and they walk on their treadmill, and when they get off their treadmill, then they go outside and get in their Maserati car or whatever and <laughs> drive. <laughs> it makes no sense to me at all. <laughs> That if you want to walk, go walk. Go to the store walking. All right, guys. I got to get going. Thanks, Tomorado. Thanks, everybody. I appreciate your time. Before, So you have arrived at her at the destination of her place, right? Yeah. All right. So what you want to do is to get out of your car and go for a five-minute walk. Okay. And then go see her. All Give right. yourself a five-minute walk. Get things I'll pumping up. Okay. Let the stuff I'll that we've been that. telling you today soak in. I will. All right. Go enjoy a little walk. I will. Thank you. Take some breaths. Enjoy the moment. And then enjoy whatever she presents to you. I will. Bye. Uh, I see a smile, a little one, tiny little <laughs> smile. Anybody can you see a smile? <laughs> <laughs> wow, well, this has been a fun talk. We've been kind of all over the place, but we do that anyway. That's what we do here is just come up with what's, what's there. Robert, do you have any more questions about austerity? Um, you know, I don't think so at the moment, but, um, it's an interesting subject. You know, I, I think, uh, austerities can be, um, 
a vehicle for development of confidence and also for confidence. development of bad feelings. <laughs> and it depends well, on how you choose to relate to them. It depends upon how you do the austerities. If you do the austerities, then yeah. it gives you a sense of power. Look what I can do. Aha, I can walk everywhere I go barefoot and nobody around me can. They have to have shoes or four feet. <laughs> okay, so that's one, one of the ways of looking at it is that, yes, when you can do these austerities, it gives you great confidence. This was what I was mentioning about the, the, um, the dark night of the soul that's become so common in uh, uh, verbiage about meditation. But the point is, is that if you can go through the dark night of the soul and come out on the other side of the dark night of the, dark night of the soul with the redoubling of the effort and the practice of the Eightfold Noble Path correctly, then that will give you the confidence that, hey, I put myself through an absolute hell, which means that I can go through absolute hell. I can do that again. I don't have to now because I know not, but I actually gained the confidence that I can handle anything if I can handle the mess I put myself into that time. So hitting rock bottom has its advantages, that you know that you can hit rock bottom and survive. Yeah, that reminds me, I have a, a friend who recovered from a heroin addiction, and he has a very wholesome view on the whole thing, where he said, you know what, recovered addicts are the most badass people you'll ever meet, because they've survived all kinds of really dangerous situations. So if you want to meet a hero, meet a recovered addict. And I love that attitude. You know, that's Precisely a great attitude. So. So this happened in the 1970s and 80s, and it doesn't happen so much anymore. But there was a time when the Americans were coming out of the use of tobacco. And there were some people who kept insisting that they're going to smoke in restaurants, even though the laws are passed and what kind of stuff. Now, the people who had never smoked, when they go into that situation, they don't like it. Their eyes will tear. Uh, they'll cough a little bit, but they won't do anything. But then an ex-smoker walks into that restaurant and finds smokers into it. Guess what? He's the one who's going to stand up and say, no smoking in this place. Put your stuff out. In other words, it's the ex-smokers who actually motivated the smokers to stop smoking. The people who had never smoked before, they didn't motivate any of the smokers to stop smoking. It was only the ex-smokers who motivated the, the smokers to stop smoking. Interesting like that. You could also go so far as to say those people who have gotten their mind straightened out, they won't want to go around helping other people straighten their mind out. Those people who have never bothered to straighten their mind out at all, they don't have much value or interest in it. So if you've gone through the dark night of the soul, you know you can handle the dark night of the soul, and you can help other people not go into the dark night of the soul. So this is that issue of confidence. And some austerities, if they're practiced correctly, will give you a strong sense of accomplishment. Hey, I can do things that other people just don't do. I think, in fact, that was part of the reason that Achan Po trained me the way that he did, especially during the Ponza time. When you've got the bowl, you've got the lid of the bowl, 
you've got the Sangati, you've got all of that stuff, and you have to now have to carry an umbrella. And carrying that umbrella and keeping the, 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 the trunk and opening the bowl and holding the bowl while people put in there, that's quite a lot of manual dexterity. Luckily enough, I was into music and doing some other things, and so I learned to manipulate my hands. But that's interesting. That those are that's actually a kind of an austerity. My hands would hurt trying to manipulate the bowl, which you would carry under the with your left hand with your right hand. But then you have to manipulate both both the, the lid of the bowl and the umbrella with the other hand. And not only that, but when you're carrying the bowl, you can't carry it with one hand and carry the umbrella and the other. No, you've got to carry the umbrella and the bowl such that you can use your left hand on top of that lid to help balance the bowl. It is an austerity. It's the strangest little austerity that you'd ever imagine, but it's still an austerity to be out there doing that for an hour or two every morning, carrying an umbrella and a bowl that's getting heavier and heavier with stuff in it until it's completely full and watching where you're going with every step. Because Ajahn Po, he would carry us through minefields. I mean, uh, when I talk about crossing a gravel road, <laughs> he had this gravel road that we had to cross every day. <laughs> and so that gives you a sense of confidence that you can do this. That's one of the values of the austerity, if they're practiced correctly gives you a supreme sense of confidence so that you could go around unarmed. Don't need protection. Got everything you need to protect yourself. Got your skills. You've got your mind. That's all you need. Ready for anything. And so this is the part of the reason why people do practice austerities. Not, uh, I, I can't think of any other reason to practice austerities other than just punishing yourself which people do a lot, but that's not a valid reason. But being able to do these austerities so that it gives you the confidence that you need. So I imagine that was part of the confidence that the Buddha was able to get was because he put himself through hell of those austerities and he came out on the other side recommending, hey, those austerities themselves have no value. But what does have the value is the, the winner that comes out the other side of that hell that he put himself through. And not only that, but we can piggyback when we can see other monks putting themselves through those austerities, then we can gain value through that also. That that's part of the Sangha also. You, every monk does not have to put himself through that kind of hell. You can watch other monks do it and snicker. And recognize, hey, I can see what they've gotten out of it. I can get that out of it without having to put myself through the, through the austerities themselves. And so that's actually the easy way to do the austerities is to watch somebody else do them. <laughs> Which is exactly the way that we learn mathematics now, isn't it? Do you ever learn mathematics from a book? No, you learn the mathematics by watching someone else at the blackboard doing it. So yes, there is song in a math class. You have to have a teacher. You have to be around someone who knows how to do it and you watch them do it and they gain great advantage for that reason. 
No one has ever, even those who say that they are self-taught, no one learns to play the piano self-taught. In other words, you, you take a jungle bunny and give him a piano and that's all. He's never heard music. He's never seen the piano played before. Do you think he's going to show up to be a Mozart? I don't think so. Not a chance. No. That in order for someone to learn to play the piano, even if he's had no formal teaching, guess what? He has been watching other teachers. And in fact, one of the things that Danny admitted that when he was learning to play the drums, he would watch videos and slow them down so that he could watch what those drummers were doing at great slow detail so that he could, <laughs> and there's that repetition doing it over and over and over again, slowed down so that you can bring the drumming up to speed. And so that's the actually the austerity then. Uh, we can take the word austerity off of it and put activity, whatever the activity is, whether it's drumming or manipulating goods with your hands or whatever, it's always a training. That my mother was able to use the sewing machine and she was actually okay with it. Not a star, but she was okay with it. And I kept trying to learn to view the sewing machine. I kept bunching stuff up. The threads would get all over the place and all of that because I didn't know how to smoothly move the, uh, uh, the cloth through the machine. But after practice, I could do it. So we'll leave this conversation at that point, Robert, is, is that we can practice over and over again, whatever it is that we're doing, whether we call it an austerity or not, and then get the value of the confidence that we know that we can do it because we keep doing it correctly now over and over and over and over again. So what awesome. we're talking about here with meditation is not any different than anything else in life. Any skill that you want to learn, you've got to practice it. And if you're practicing and, and happiness is a skill to be developed, practice, practice, practice being happy. Great. All right, I've, I've got to run, guys. Uh, All right. Great. See you, Robert. See you, Robert. Right. Oh, walk instead. <laughs> <laughs> you got it yes sir <laughs> yeah my mother used to say i've got to run to the store and i says i think you're going to drive <laughs> awesome larry cheers see you guys cheers. this has been a good talk i've enjoyed this and thank <laughs> you so much matt for showing up i'm really pleased to see you again sir i look forward to next week all right excellent Bye-bye, Todd. We'll see ya. See you guys. See you, Matt. See you, Todd. See you tomorrow. Bye, Todd.